The Law Report with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, this evening, for the first time this year, we're focusing once again on property law, with a focus this evening on rental property law. And joining me in our Cape Town studios is our regular property law attorney, Marlon Chevalu, who practices as Marlon Chevalu and Associates here in Cape Town. Marlon, good evening. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. End of November, I think we last saw you. It has been. Uh, it's been a good break, but uh, back into the swing of things and looking forward to being back on the show. Great. Well, if you have any questions for Marlon or you have any comments about anything to do with property law, you can call us now on 0892-102010. The Law Report with Karen Key. Well, Marlon, I mentioned that we were talking about rental property law, focusing a little bit on that this evening. And I um, think coming out of the holiday season, I wonder how many of our listeners out there have had dreaded tenants or holiday rentals or some drama going on over the holiday season with renting out their properties. I'm sure you must have already seen quite a bit of that. Absolutely. Um, I think the, the new year has kicked off with a bang. Um, what we've seen is that there's been quite a bit, of, um, a bit of issues with regard to a particular agent that was defrauding quite a few people with regard to over booking certain holiday premises but just normal tenancy people have money to pay for christmas trees and money to pay for their holidays but regretfully no money to pay their landlords and the rental agents so we've already started off with the court opening doing quite a bit of evictions oh, and no, um, at the beginning of the year that's collections. Dreadful. it is it's dreadful for them it's great for us but um it's indicative once again of the economy i'm not saying that tenants are simply refusing to pay but it is the economy it's just tough times it's, it's a continual tough time and we have to be alive to that but you are going to be holding some seminars of your own. You're doing workshops, but it's really for the estate, for, for landlords themselves. Landlords and rental agents. Landlords who own their own property. So this could be somebody yep. who isn't actually a member, because I know you, if you're a member of the Institute of Estate Agents, you pay 100 rand to go to the seminar or the workshop, 200 rand for non-members. Now, a non-member could be... Anyone. Joe Bloggs, who has a flat or a house or whatever that they're letting out, but just needs some more information on how to go about doing this properly. Uh, absolutely. The Institute of Estate Agents, under the fantastic rule of um, Diane Brock, who's the general manager, we basically has retained me once again to do seminars in, a, in association with the Institute of Estate Agents. Every single month is going to be at least one seminar where we're going to tackle landlord-tenant law, evictions, collections, and a multitude of different areas for about two, two and a half hours. Uh, I'll be hosting all those seminars. Around the country or just in Cape Town? Just in the Western Cape for now. Uh, We're going to be hitting other um, cities and towns with other seminars. But now for the Western Cape, we're doing seminars once a month. And those details will be available on my website, on my Facebook page. And they can just email you. Or they can look on my new Facebook page, uh, Law on on SAFM. They'll hopefully by this evening when I get back to the office. All of that will be up there. Fantastic. Great. Now, you said there were going to be other seminars um, that you were going to be doing through, uh, around the country. What are those? Well, last year we had our first advanced residential rental property seminar through the University of Cape Town, which have endorsed the course. It was a tremendous success. So much so it's going on a roadshow. So we're coming up to Joburg on the 13th of March. We're going to be in uh, 23rd of March. March. I apologize. Mm. I might go a little bit early. Uh, <laughs> if we, 23rd of March. We're going to be in Durban on the 23rd of April. Uh, and then we're going to be in Cape Town on the 9th of May. Um, those dates are still being confirmed, but that's pretty much the tentative dates, and marketing material will be made available. Those are going to be paid-for courses, but for that you get a full day with me, which is about nine hours, which is pretty intense. Um, you get lunch, which is nice. You get tea. But on top of that, you get um, brand 
spanking new information regarding the Rental Housing Act, the Estate Agency Affairs Act, the Consumer Protection Act, the National Credit Act, the Debt Collectors Act, all the legislation, latest case law, all the notes. And it's the kind of course where you walk out afterwards and there shouldn't be anything you don't know as a landlord or rental agent, uh, state agent, etc. And it's endorsed by the University of Cape Town. So they're taking it on the road, show, University Absolutely. of Cape Town. Okay. And they give you a wonderful certificate of attendance, which looks very much like a degree. And you get the knowledge and you get the notes and you get a Q&A time with me as well. And our last one in Cape Town, um, if people are interested, I've got about... 15 or 16 testimonials on my webpage where people tell them about the value of, of that one-day seminar. So looking forward to that. Now, last year we had these fabulous ones that you were the free ones that the our listeners ones, yes. were literally clamoring for. Are you doing any more of those? I mean, you're going to, by the sounds of it, being very busy this year. No, it is, it's going to be very busy this year, but that's what it's about, educating rental agents and landlords. There is going to be another road show. Uh, we had one last year. It was through PayProp. Yes, that's pa- right. PayProp mm. are the leading um, company that deal with managing trust accounts on behalf of rental agents. And we had a wonderful seminar last year where one of the guest speakers and, and who shared the platform with us was Brian Chaplog, who's the acting CEO of the Estate Agency Affairs Board. We're going to be having one again in June. Um, PayProp is organizing it. And once those dates come out, I'll make sure that... Um, Law um, on SAFM gets all the details that they need. That would so, be great. Well, my listeners were very interested in that last year. So, And on top of that, can... uh, we're still doing the monthly training sessions with the Tenant Profile Network, which, as you know, is the most reputable credit bureau uh, for screening tenants in the country. And um, we are doing seminars with them or traditional Q&As where we come into the training session and whichever 100 or 150 agents are there get to spend an hour with me for free once again. So a lot of free stuff, which is important, but the intensive course seminar uh, is something that is much more, I suppose, styled and geared towards training the rental agents to know everything that they need to know to be a rental agent. and to look Well, that's great because it's looking after us as well because a lot of people who own a flat or a house or whatever it is will employ a rental agent to manage it for them. So if you know that your rental agent is getting the correct training – Hopefully we won't, we won't have another situation like you mentioned at the beginning of the show with this rental agent who was defrauding everybody. So, well, What's amazing, Karen, if I just can interject, is that you know if you are an estate agent, you are managing th- properties on behalf of po- certain people, you've got to be registered as an estate agent. And invariably to become registered as an estate agent, you've got to do what we call an NQ4 or an NQ5, which is the training and the information you need to learn to get your Fidelity Fund certificate. But if you're a landlord managing your own property, you don't have to be an estate agent. The only thing you have to remember is to put the deposit into an interest-bearing account. So how do you know, how do you learn how to be a landlord? Mm-hmm. How do you learn to act as if you are a rental agent? You come to courses such as these. And you can get, you can actually end up being as good as. As good as. Mm-hmm. But I don't tell them everything, of course. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, enough to Enough to get them, them on, yes. yes. So let's talk about uh, rental properties now. You wanted to focus on rental property law tonight. Yes. Well, for us. But if you if you have any questions, doesn't matter what they are, as long as they're to do with property law, you can call us now on 0892-10-2010, Okay, rental property law. A lot of people hear the word rental property and they start hyperventilating because they've had a bad experience or something's gone horribly wrong. But there's lots of people out there that actually have had a, a great experience with renting out property. So... Absolutely. I think what people need to remember is, and the reason why I continue to focus on rental property law, whereas a lot of other attorneys keep focusing on conveyancing and sales of properties, is that if you have a good rental book and good tenants that you screened and good lease agreements from very good attorneys, uh, present company included, um, what you'll find is that you get annuity income. You get a property that appreciates in value. 
Um, capital appreciation is wonderful. You get rental income, which covers your bond, hopefully, or at least half your bond. And things go smoothly. Sales these days take a long time to register property and transferring of property, NCA, you know, every single bit of information that goes into a sale of a property from lodging to actual conveyancing process taking place um, ends up taking a long time. And there's so many pitfalls with the National Credit Act preventing a bond being granted because the bank doesn't believe you've got enough security. But with rentals, you buy a decent property, you do a decent screen on the tenant, you put him in, and if you monitor it carefully and you have your structures in place, that becomes a cash cow. So that's why rental property is, is, has been underestimated in the past, but I've seen a lot of managing agents now focusing their attention on rental property law and focusing their attention on getting a good book of tenants who pay every single month. But um, there's some tenants who don't, some tenants who do. There's some wonderful tenants, and those are the kind of people I don't really hear from. I only hear people uh, from people when they get into trouble. But those people who have good tenants, hold on to them. If you feel that there's, it's due for a, a renewal of the lease and an increase in the, in, the, in the rental amount of 10%, don't increase it if you believe that it's too much for the tenant. There's nothing obliging you to act to the point where you keep making extra money off the tenant. Look after your tenant and make sure that the tenant looks after you because they are bringing value to you. They're bringing value to the point that your property gets paid off and whatever you make after that is pure profit. Because, I mean, if you're talking about the, you know, look at the tenant, if they're having a slightly rough time right now, you don't have to do the 10%. Maybe do a 3% or a 5% Absolutely. or whatever's, you know affordable but also bear in mind that you know if you, you're doing something good for the tenant at least you've got a paying tenant Correct. you could they could then say well look i really can't afford this they could leave and you could get fabulous people that you well you think they're fabulous but two months down the line stop paying and then you wishing you'd never increased the, the rent 10 percent three months ago but this is the problem with the consumer protection act they are entitled at any time during the currency of the lease to cancel on 20 business days notice mm. and arbitrarily which means they may choose to cancel because they don't like you or they may choose to cancel because they're not really inclined to pay an increased um, amount on the actual rental. Then what happens? You have to then go find another tenant. You've got to advertise. You're going to mitigate your loss. It might take you two or three months. And the problem is a lot of people are buying properties like that to rent out, but paying using the rental to cover the bond. So you might be in a bit of a financial situation if you can't pay the bond on the other property because your tenants now disappeared or they're not paying. In fact, it gets a little bit worse than that. The Consumer Protection Act allows the tenant, in terms of Section 14 of the Act, to extricate themselves from the lease. But the National Credit Act is a completely separate piece of legislation that compels you, in terms of your bond application, to continue, continue paying your bond irrespective of whether you're getting your rental. So much so that if you go to court and ask for an urgent eviction because you believe the tenant won't pay the rental or hasn't paid the rental and you say well if I don't get the rental in I can't pay the bond that is not deemed to be any ground of urgency because all that the judge or the magistrate will say to you is well you haven't geared your property correctly if you can't get a property and manage a property without getting rental for a couple of months you've got, you've got a problem and that is not the fault of the court so that's why it's important rent or not bond must be paid and that's when it becomes very interesting then it really becomes your problem correct we have our first caller on the line Fiona in Toyando good evening hi good evening how can we help you Fiona um, we've been renting a house um, for the past 15 years from a development corporation you know, one that was set up during the old Bantustan days. Um, and they're virtually defunct now, although they maintain an office. Now, our concern is that we got a letter from them quite a while ago saying that they would not be conducting any maintenance on the building 
Now, it was a wooden building, so we had basically um, used our own money to fix it up, and it's, it's basically a brick building now. But my concern is that they, they want to take us to court for not paying the, the um, escalation. Now, what, we do, what we're doing is we're paying the rental every month so that we don't get in trouble, but we refuse to pay the 10% escalation that they add on every year because we see that as being for maintenance and they literally have not done a thing in, in the past maybe 10 years or more. And you have a letter to that effect, that they're not going um, to do any maintenance? Sorry, I have a letter uh, to what effect? That they're not going to be doing any maintenance. Yes, we've got it somewhere. Um, and, okay. and we've got many, we've got records of many phone calls, you know. Even the septic tank which serves two of their houses, um, when it got blocked, we had to pay to have it um, unblocked and sorted out and rebuilt. Fiona, let me, let me just jump in quickly. Um, you say a 15-year lease. Explain well, it to me. it's ongoing. Yeah, it's sort of an indefinite lease. So it's, a, it's a, what we call, an, it's a, I suppose, an unfixed lease. Uh, let me just understand. When you signed the lease, did it say that the lease will continue indefinitely until terminated by on a certain amount of period of time's notice. Would that be correct? Uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, yeah, they would have to give notice. Okay, it's important to... to, to for, I would have to see the lease, but what I can tell you is the following. That yearly escalation is not because of maintenance. That yearly escalation is in keeping with inflation. So uh, it's not an amount which, which uh, you you shouldn't pay because you feel it should be allocated towards maintenance. What is clear is that that amount that is allocated every year is to keep with inflation, but irrespective of whether there's an escalation or not, the duty to maintain the external parameters of your premises always rests on the landlord unless it's specifically contracted out of. And now with the Consumer Protection Act, of course, which, which, which will have a role to play depending on the nature of your contract, because don't forget that the Consumer Protection Act only has a role to play in a fixed-term contract. Yours appears uh-huh. to be indefinite okay. and in, in, invariably entered into before the 1st of April 2011. But keep that aside. I do believe that they may claim, they may take you to court and claim that they're entitled to that uh, escalation. You similarly will have a claim, claim against them, what we call a, a counterclaim, whereby you can raise the potential damages you've suffered in having to spend your own money to maintain the property, which is actually the duty of the landlord. So yes. I think they have definitely uh, derogated from their duties, and I do believe you would have a claim against them. I think it's very rich on their part to to write you a letter that they don't intend to do their duties in terms of the Rental Housing Act, that they basically are threatening you, if you think of it logically, which is terms of the unfair practice regulations, to say, well, you must pay, we're going to take you to court. In fact, it would be quite right for the matter to go to court because you get an opportunity to put your version before the court. And I assure you, depending on what the lease says, I think you've been quite selfless in the way you've handled it. And I do believe they've acted completely incorrectly. I've never in my 14 years of practice known any lease agreement which calls upon the tenant to maintain the external parameters, unless, of course, it's what we call a maintenance agreement, whereby you pay um, a lot less rental, but you manage the entire property inside and out. I don't know if it's one of those, but again, it it would come down to what the lease says, but certainly up for challenge, and uh, I would be happy to help if you wanted to send it to me. Thank Um, you, that's uh, very kind of you. Sorry, the lease is a standard lease, and Mm -hmm. it was a separate letter that came some years later saying that they wanted basically to get rid of the houses 
and that they would not be doing any maintenance on them. Well, I can tell you now, Fiona, that any letter that appears subsequent to the lease being signed may not have any value whatsoever because normally in a standard lease agreement there would be what we call a sole memorial clause or a non-variation clause whereby any changes or amendments or variations to the lease would need to be recorded in writing and signed between the landlord and the tenant. Yes, of course. I'll haul out the lease and have a good study of it again. Wonderful, Fiona, and give me a shot if you need me. And, and just Thank make you. sure you've got every single piece of paper that relates to anything, Fiona. <laughs> all your costs for the maintenance, everything. Make sure you keep that all in one place. It's in two files now. No, I do not you, ever lose them. So long. Do, do not ever lose them. You know, it's one of those oh. things that if, you, if, God forbid, you had a fire, it's the first thing you grab. Yes, you know, one of those. Besides your septic <laughs> tank, of course. <laughs> Besides the septic tank, which you paid for. But good luck to you, Fiona. And as uh, Marlon says, if you need to get hold of him, uh, you can just email me or get hold of us and we can put you okay. on, in touch with Thank him. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Good luck to you. Good, good luck, night. Fiona. Good night to yeah. you. Gosh, that sounds like a bit of a cheek. Uh, it is. Uh, I still, I mean, I, I love landlords and I love rental agents. They are the people that give me the work. But right. I, I continue to be mortified by a, a, a letter like that. It's so... I just wanted to ask you something, though. If, if, she, if she, they were having to do all this maintenance yes. now and pay the rent and now they're wanting 10% as well, yes. I'm just curious, would it not pay her to sort of every month, you know, make out a, a list? Okay, well, this is the rent. This is the, the increase. This is what we've paid for maintenance. So this is how much I owe you. It depends, And submit Cora. copies of all the accounts that she's now spent on the house. If the CPA, the Consumer Protection Act, applies, yes. Why? Because... I believe that you're entitled to beneficial occupation and you can do a pro rata reduction of of the inability to enjoy your premises. And in that instance, you can raise Section 54 of the Consumer Protection Act because you haven't received a proper service. However, if the CPA is not applicable, the clause in the lease, and I have no doubt the clause is there, that rental is due on the first of every month in advance without deduction or set off. So I don't believe that would be applicable in that instance. I think you may find yourself heading into a bit of a dark area by setting off amounts. Yes, morally that would be the right thing to do well my rent is 10,000 rand I haven't been able to enjoy anything because I've spent 10 grand every month on a septic tank and doing maintenance to convert it well, it from like timber into brick and mortar and if they in, in instance if they have rebuilt it I mean I don't know why they would need to because I've done a bit, quite a bit of work for the timber frame building industry um, still hasn't taken off in this country from mm. what I've seen but to convert it into brick and mortar that might be something which could be problematic it, you know it could void potential guarantees although any guarantee that were in place have expired if it's 10 years since 10 to 15 years since they've taken occupation Mm. but it depends what the lease says and it depends which court you go in it depends which legislation is applicable but in in her instance i would be quite i'd be quite um dogmatic and say you know what i'm not paying you any rental because i've spent all this let's do a set off and take me to court it would be a nice test case but again depending on what the lease says yeah absolutely gary in durban good evening good evening how's it going well thanks how can we help um, I've got a question on capital gains tax. Um, I don't know if it's an easy question or straightforward, if you can help me on this. Well, let's, let's put it this way. Marlon's scrunched up his face. It doesn't look like an easy question, but go for it anyway, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the, the, the water that I just had. Oh, was that the, the water? Yeah, oh, right. right. Okay. <laughs> Come on, Gary. German's much better. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a second property. I live in, a, in, in obviously a property that I stay in, which is my house, and I, I purchased a, a flat. I'm not interested in being a landlord anymore. I've had enough, and I want to sell it. Hmm. Um, the, the the profit and the, the funds from that property, property I want to put back into into my mortgage. Now I know when I bought my property, the sale of of my flat when I when I had it and I put it, I was putting it into my the house that I was going to stay in. Obviously, it wasn't 
it wasn't you didn't have to pay capital gains tax on it would it would it apply now uh, Gary, I can tell you now that, that CGT is not applicable on primary residences. So the minute you start purchasing second and third and fourth properties, that's when the capital appreciation comes in and, and kicks in a little bit. So um, okay. I, if my best suggestion to you would be to, to speak to your accountants, um, I, I can tell you that this kind of question that does come up with tax law and the way of structuring properties, whatever. But what I can tell you is there is a, there is a rebate applicable. I think it was a million. I think it's escalated now it's to 3.5, I think. Um, secondly, if it's not a primary residence, there is going to be CGT you have to be aware of. So I just think you, you need to definitely do a bit of homework. Um, I'm surprised you don't want to be a landlord. It's from, these, <laughs> from these programs, you'll know it's quite an easy job. But I do mm-hmm. think that speak to an accountant and see how to structure it in such a way that not that you deprive the fiscus of the money that's due to them, but just that you structure the value of the property. I mean, there's ways of, of doing that. Um, I would I'll probably say that's for a different show, but definitely speak to your accountant. But beware of the fact that if it's not your primary residence, CGT is not an issue. If it isn't your primary residence, as, as I mentioned, then CGT will be a problem because the value of the property as a date of selling the property as opposed to the date of purchasing the property, if there is an escalation in the value of that property, that's when CGT mm. kicks in. And unfortunately, it can't be avoided, but it can be structured in a way which maybe you can mitigate against the potential CGT tax you might have to pay. Okay, 100%. That's no, answering your question pretty much without knowing anything. How's that? There's definitely something good in the water in Cape Town then, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> have a good evening. Bye-bye. Well, you tune to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is Marlon Chevalu. He's an attorney practicing here in Cape Town as Marlon Chevalu and Associates. And this evening we're discussing property law. If you have any questions, you can call us on 0892 10-2010. Oscar in Secunda, good evening. Good evening, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good to you too, guys. Yes, and to Thanks, you too, Oscar. Oscar. I've, I've been waiting for this for some time. Oh, good. How can we help you? Good. Uh, me and my friend are trying in a business to purchase properties. My, one of our interests is now to purchase a property in, in Masike, mm-hmm. which is my tribal land. What are the pros and cons on that one? What must, uh, must I be careful of? You say with regard to tribal, tribal well, he's, land. He wants to you buy, wanting to buy property in. Yeah, there's a there's a process of, of process of purchasing one in Mafi King. In Mafi King, okay, it's tribal yeah. land. Yeah, it's a tribal land. Okay, so he wants to know what the pitfalls or the good side yeah. or the bad side of buying property on yeah. tribal land. Yeah. I, I just think the most important thing is to determine who the owners of that property are because. Okay, with, let me say this to you: we hmm. met the owner, we even met the king. You know. Yes. But on, 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 the, on the law side, what must I be careful of? On the law side, look, the, the, whichever way you spin it, in order to have proof of ownership, you've got to see that this gentleman, whoever that might be, and the owner, the king, whatever that might be, that okay. there is a title deed. You know, in our law, in order to bestow ownership upon somebody, there needs to be a title deed. There needs to be your name registered on that title deed, and that title deed needs to be registered at the deeds office. So from, from an indigenous law perspective, you know, there's different laws that apply to, to tribal to tribal property, but I can tell you right now that in order to look at it purely from a legal perspective, you need to know that there needs to be a sale agreement. Well, then, first of all, the property has to be registered in the name of the the person who's buying it from, yes. In fact, in order to enter into the sale agreement, you're entitled to ask for proof. 
that this person not only owns the property, but the property is not encumbered, Oscar. In other words, with tribal properties, you have ancestors who may lay claim to particular properties. So it would be in your interest, firstly, to find out when, how would you would be buying this? Would you be buying it privately? Would you be buying it in execution? Would you be buying it at an auction? These things are very important because if you're purchasing things through um, execution or through an auction, inevitably there will be attorneys involved. If you're buying it privately, you need to be particularly careful that the person that you're buying it from has the right to sell that property and that there's not going to be any comeback. That's the best legal advice I can give you. Oh, okay. Is there anything else further that you, yeah, you need to know? Like you mentioned maybe what you call the, this must be right, the deeds office. The deeds well, office. The certificate, they call it uh, um, um, something certificate that the that someone, this letter must go to a federal authority whereby the king or the headman has to sign yes, and the owner has to sign and we have to sign as, as, as a new owner. And there are three people, members of the tribal authority, who also have to sign that. My, in my view, I, I thought that was authentic enough for me to wear the thing. No, absolutely. Now, as I say, with regard to tribal tribal law and tribal properties, absolutely. Let me let me give you an analogy, Oscar, which, which might make sense. You may choose to be of, of Muslim or, or Jewish faith and have what we call an uncivil marriage. In other words, you get married uh, in terms of your own tradition. In that instance, you would be married. But in order to be recognized in terms of African law as as married, you would need to get married in terms of civil law. In other words, um, so there's got to be two marriages. There's got to be two marriage ceremonies, not dissimilar to this. I have no doubt that that uh, as to the veracity of any sale between uh, you and this king and the owner. But what I can tell you is, for purposes of selling it to a third party, uh, it's always good to ensure that the name is reflected at the deeds office. The deeds office is the central office that holds all certification of properties that are owned. If you at any time, at any place in the world, want to find out if somebody owns a property, you need to go to an office where those documents are available for inspection. These documents may be available for inspection to you in Mafeking, but what if you decide to sell it to another person? You as the owner need to give this new purchaser proof. How would you demonstrate that? With the certificate that you've got signed with this other owner? And I think that you should definitely contact a conveyancer in the Mafeking area to okay. determine whether or not tribal law and tribal properties in Mafeking warrant the legalities, as I've just mentioned. Okay, basically, over and above the certificate that I'm going to be getting from, the, from these parties, mm-hmm. I must also register with the deeds office. In order to register with the deeds office, there's going to be a now, sale. What I'm saying, like, now, mm-hmm. over and above the certificate they're going to give me, yes. okay, as proof that this land belongs to me. Yes. I must also restart this I'm of the opinion that in order to have a right that is enforceable against the world at large, in other words, it's what we call a real right. Ownership of immovable property is what we call a real right, which means no one in the world can take that property away if you own it. Because that real right of being registered at the deeds office is where people go to see, does Oscar own the property or not? So I'm of the opinion, and I, I might stand to be corrected, because as I say, tribal laws are are very different to civil law, but I would suggest just to be completely safe, not with doubting anything with regard to the actual tribal certificate, but I would definitely consider speaking to an advocate or at least a, a conveyancer who specializes in this particular area of law. They may turn around and say, you know what, Oscar, the tribal law certificate is fine, 
but they might say, you know what, rather take that certificate and get it endorsed at the title deeds, uh, as, at the deeds office in order to ensure that you are safe and secure should you want to sell that property to somebody who isn't of, you know, of a tribal influence, somebody who says, well, I want to buy that property in Mafeking, show me proof that you own it. They might say the tribal certificate is not enough. But as I say, I don't, I'm not a conveyancer. I do a lot of work which involves conveyancing, but I would certainly suggest you go see a conveyancer in Mafeking. All right. All right. Okay, Oscar. Okay, thank you, thank you good luck, Oscar. Thanks. Good night to you. Dylan in Durban, good evening. Yes, good evening. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? Good, thanks, man. How can we help? Um, I was uh, wondering, I've been to a process of buying a property on an auction where um, the, the seller was the owner of the property who was obviously trying to get out of a difficult situation. And... Um, uh, once the auction had taken place, uh, paid a deposit to the auctioneers, and before we got to the next step of transferring or anything like that, the owner was sequestrated, and the property then um, became under, I think, executorship of the bank or whatever you call it, and they appointed new uh, auctioneers. Um, and in the process, we were approached because we had signed a sale agreement, and and they then asked if we could pay a second or new deposit to them and we had to get to the first deposit back from the first auctioneers. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure. There's no kind of... Uh, uh, I don't know what the law or anything like that says about trying to get yourself out of a situation where you've got <laughs> money being held by one auctioneer versus another who's uh, demanding a, um, a second payment. Well, let me let me just phrase it somewhat differently if, if I can. An auctioneer would be selling the property on behalf of the seller because the seller, as you say, wants to sell the property and get some money in. Um, the only reason why this person would have been sequestrated, which uh, just for our listeners is like liquidating a private person, um, in that instance, if there was a sequestration application that was brought what would have happened would, would have been that the trustees of the insolvent estate would have come along, brought an application to sequestrate him. The minute he goes into sequestration, Dylan, unfortunately it puts everything on a hold because if you have to receive proceeds whilst the sequestration is going along, you are being preferred as a creditor. I can tell you now if the sequestration has come through, there are a number of creditors, obviously, who want money from this particular seller. So in this instance, I do believe that the sequestration would trump any sale agreement in place. And I do believe not only the fact that there's a deposit that was paid, the auctioneer would have to get that deposit back. And that's mm. and the, the, the actual trustees would be well, in my opinion, well within their rights to call upon you to put a proper deposit into their bank account and to furnish the balance against transfer because they now, the trustees of the insolvent estate, would be entitled to take control of the money. In fact, the seller, as you know or may not know, loses all his status and all his rights to handle anything whilst they are trustees handling his insolvent estate. Those trustees would be the party that actually would enter into the sale agreement with you in his stead. So it would be a completely separate transaction. I do believe you had every right in law to claim the deposit back from the auctioneer. The reason why I say that is because the auctioneers are the effective cause of the deal going through, but the deal is not going through at this juncture, and it's not being done by them. The auctioneers should give that deposit back, in my opinion, and there shouldn't be any problem there. Can I ask a really okay. stupid question? Sure. If, this, if the person who's now in financial difficulty yes. and he's trying to sell his property to be able to repay the bank... 
and mm. he's now sold the property on auction, mm. why wouldn't the bank just let that go through and get their money back from him instead of doing this whole sequestration thing? Let, let themselves get the money from the, from the property and then do this other thing. Because what you might find is that the bank will sell the property just to, enough to cover the outstanding bond. Yeah, well, he would have at least got some more money. But whereas the trustees of the insolvent estate are looking to get as much money as they can for no, the No, but he was selling it privately. The bank wasn't involved at that point. Dylan, am I correct? No, the bank wasn't involved. Was so it was a private sale, yes. and the deal was going through, nixing the guy went into, into, into sequestration. See, that's what I couldn't. I can't understand why they didn't let him just do that and get as much money out of it as he could have. They could do that, but there could be reasons why the trustees believed that it was not something they wanted to happen at that particular juncture. The trustees could have said, might have said to themselves, you know what, this is a private treaty. We want to bring a value in. We want to see that the property is worth what it's being sold for, because this person was selling it as a as a as a as a fire sale, so to speak. Well, to I'm get... sure he would have wanted to get as much out of it as he could have to try and cover well, some other costs as well. I mean, that's just me as a no, no, no. And, and that makes yeah. sense. But again, obviously, I, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know what the price was. Um, have they asked for a different price, the, the, Dylan? Uh, no, the bank actually. Um the, the initial price, agreed price, was accepted because the bank did send in their own evaluators okay. to uh, value the property and. So the, the only issue, the only issue I can foresee price. is that the trustees have basically stepped into the shoes of the auctioneer, and they want to be in control of the process. That could be anything. It sounds a bit greedy. I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn. I work closely with some trustees. But in this instance, if it's not a higher price, then it's simply a question of an altering deposit. It's um, weird. That's it, it does sound a bit weird. Out. But the only thing I can think of is that the trustees want to be in control of the estate. But I think Dylan's initial question, and still mm. the question, you know, how easy is it going to be for him to get that money out of the auctioneers? Well, let me put you this way. There's no reason, in fact, or in law, for the auctioneers to be holding to that deposit if they're no longer part of the equation. Have you had a problem with them getting it back from them, Dylan? Uh, we're going through a process at the moment. I just wanted to uh, hear your guys' opinion. But, I, um, can I proffer? Let me proffer another opinion quickly. Their argument could potentially be that they were the effective cause at the fall of the hammer. They were entitled to their commission. If they were entitled to their commission, then let them keep their commission. But the balance of the purchase price gets paid to the trustees. Um, you know, they are taking they are taking ten percent of the value, whatever, at the drop of the of the drop of the hammer. In that instance, they would be entitled to their commission. Um, any deposit that is there, they're entitled to recoup their commission from the deposit. But the balance must be paid back to you. So it's just a question of the auctioneers coming along and saying, you know, we did our job properly. We're not trying to deprive anyone. We were the effective cause of the sale. We're entitled to the money that we've earned as a result of the commission. Um, in fact, in my opinion, is, is that the, potentially the trustees could have a claim against auctioneers. I don't see why you should be getting involved at all. You've purchased a property. The trustees have come in now. You can turn around to the trustees and say, listen, I paid a commission to the auctioneers. I'm willing to pay the balance against the transfer going through. Where do I pay? He shouldn't be out of pocket yeah. at all because no, of, through all. The, the commission for the, for the auctioneers. No. That's just between the trustees and the auctioneers. It's nothing to do with I, I Dylan. Don't, no, I don't think anything I don't think it has to do with Dylan at all. I don't see why he has to claim the money back from them. And you're not claiming back the deposit, Dylan. You'd be claiming back the commission, surely. Yeah, sure. That's uh, 100%. I think the um, when the the trustees took it over, the, or the bank at least, the, um, they handed it over to new auctioneers, which then, I think that's where the, the problem became uh, evident. They they wanted to deal with their their uh, people, or their system, if you want to call it that. Of course. Um, the banks so, have their paneled attorneys. It's just a question of taking control, in my opinion, nothing more. But I think yeah. whether it's the trustees are handling it now through their attorneys, um, or the, the bank's attorneys, whatever the case might be, you've paid your commission to the 
to the actual entity that facilitated the sale. You now yeah. have a balance to pay by a certain period of time, subject to you getting a guarantee or a, or a bond. Yes, yes. But in that instance, the balance will be paid to the trustees because the trustees have now taken ownership of the property, care of the sequestration application they brought against the owner. So you're saying that Dylan should actually tell the trustees to go and deal with the auctioneers. It shouldn't be his place to do that. I don't see why he has to deal with the auctioneers. I don't know what he's asking the auctioneers for. Dylan? Sure. Sorry? As I'm saying, you could, by, by the sounds of it, you should just step back and tell them to sort it out amongst themselves. Yeah, so I think that's that's a good call. I'll, I'll have to give the guy a call in the morning. And well, good luck with that. Let us know what happens, Dylan. <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for getting through. Okay, good night to you. Alrighty. Well, we s- you too. Yes, Bye-bye. Bye. We're staying in Durban. David, good evening. Uh, good evening. It, uh, the Durban Corporation are no longer going to allow... Uh, tenants uh, to register their electricity accounts. They have to be registered in the name of the landlord. Mm-hmm. Is it a, sorry, is it a question? Oh, just... yeah, no, are you aware of that? Is that the same in Cape Town? Um, I'm not particularly so you're sure. yeah. saying is if you're a tenant in, in, in a flat, for example... Um, so if you're a flat owner, mm-hmm. the uh, electricity account has to be registered in your name. It cannot be registered in the name of the the tenant. Of oh, the tenant, okay. Well, th- that I've heard of, but in my opinion, it doesn't really make any difference because the owner is always responsible for the electricity accounts. Well, it's more direct now, but that is... The, the, what From what I understand, yes. Now. Yes, David, I would say you're correct there uh, in terms of the bylaw. I mean, electricity issues are changing all the time with the Electricity Regulation Act of, of 2009. Um, in fact, there was a recent question which came before me, um, David, which might be of interest to you about the duty of a landlord to ensure that the tenant receives an electrical certificate before they take occupation of the property and whether that's something they can demand. Um, that, was, that was actually written up quite recently by a, a gentleman in, on Property 24. But from what I can tell you now, David, not to digress, I do believe that is now, is now how it's going to be. But as I say, it's far more... No, di- no, that, is, that is the case. The corp- a corporation used to register uh, electric light accounts in the name of the tenant. Now they've refused to do that. And in future, only uh, for, for new, uh, new occupation, uh, the the only person who would be registered as the account holder would be the landlord. That's genuine. There's nothing about that. What I want to know is, um, if your tenant didn't pay, could you cut the electricity off? No, um, I'm so glad you asked the question. No, you can't. You can't because that is illegal. It's unlawful, even if there is a fortune of utilities owing, David. That is illegal in our law. There's a tremendous amount of case law. In fact, there was a recent case of the city of Cape Town versus Martus, I think Martus Strumper, where they chose to cut off his electricity because he, um, he said, I hadn't received any services, and they disputed it, and they told him, we're going to cut you off. And uh, in fact, it was water, a utility, but very similar. He took them to the Supreme Court of Appeal, and the city of Cape Town lost. Lost. And how long could that go on for? I mean, the black could live there for the rest of his life, uh, free electricity. Well, that shouldn't really happen. There's two things you can be aware of. Firstly, if the tenant doesn't pay electricity, you can't cut it off, obviously, because you're not the service provider. Secondly, you can't direct that the city or the local council cut it off because then you're perpetrating what we call spoliation. In other words, you're perpetrating the unlawful act of cutting off electricity even though a tenant has a right to, to, to stay there and even though if, if he owes money because the court is not particularly concerned about whether or not the tenant has or has not paid. The question is, did you cut the electricity off whilst the tenant was in occupation? That's the only test. The other thing that I do suggest and what you can do, in my opinion, is there's nothing in law preventing you, David, from approaching the city council saying, you know what, I can't pay the electricity because I haven't got paid 
from them, my tenants, and I put it, I leave it to you to do what you have to do. In that instance, the city council can choose to cut it off. They can cut off the electricity. They have the power because they, they are the service providers in that regard. But in this instance, you can't take the law into your own well, hands. Would the, t- the tenant be allowed to then uh, uh, um, uh, go against the uh, municipality? You can try if you, you, can try if you it's want. Be, it's going to have to be registered in the name of the, the landlord. That's, that's fact. They, we've got no, notification of that. They're not going to uh, register uh, tele- um, uh, electric accounts in the name of a tenant in future. No, no, but David, the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't really matter whose name it's registered in. The owner is the always owner liable. The owner is always liable. That's the point I'm trying to make. So it's more formal now, granted, but in my opinion it makes no difference. So the tenant could live there uh, and have free electricity for the rest of his life. Well, Marlon actually explained that if it got to the point where they weren't paying and you went to the council and you didn't ask the council to cut it off, but you just explained to the council that you, as the landlord, cannot afford to pay the electricity because the tenant isn't paying you and they need to just do whatever they need to do and leave it at that. But they wouldn't be allowed to do that. Who wouldn't be allowed to do that? The council. Corporation, anybody. You can't cut somebody's electricity off. No, but the city council can if a letter goes out calling upon you to pay, and if you don't pay, they can take that action. Water is different. The case I mentioned earlier, the city of Canton was water. In this instance, electricity, if it isn't paid, they're allowed to write a letter saying we will cut you off within seven days. If the tenant wants to challenge it, they can challenge it, but they will cut it off. That much I can tell you. Yeah. But the, the, the change is that the, the landlord would be the, the, the uh, per- person responsible for the payment of electricity. But he always is. Any longer. No, but David, the, uh, the landlord always is responsible, no matter if you have I hear you, but they've formalized it now in the sense that they've made it uh, impossible now for a tenant to open a, 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 an electric uh, life account in his name. It's got to be in the landlord's name. Fair enough, but the, uh, that, that in this instance, all I'm saying is that it's the one thing of the... The, the account being in the name of the landlord, it's a completely different issue if the tenant does not pay the electricity and the landlord goes to the department and says, listen, uh, I know it's in my name, but my tenant is living there. I can't pay you because my tenant hasn't paid me. I allocate electricity rate to him, and he hasn't paid me. And the city council says, well, well, if you don't like it, it's your property. We're going to cut the electricity off. I say, well, then you do what you have to do. Boom, problem solved. Just one question now mm. with the prepaid meters. Yes. That makes life for landlords Very simple. But now can you have those installed post the commencement of the lease? Or does it, how does that work? You can, you know, as long as you record it in the lease agreement and you say, for me, it's a wonderful thing. And prepaid meters for water and electricity, mm. love it, love it. So even though you have a, a tenant that's been in there for a while and, yes. and you just think maybe for everybody's sake, hmm. it will be a whole lot easier just to have one of these prepaid what, meters in. And what if the tenant says, well, actually, I don't really want to. If the tenant doesn't want to, regretfully, that would be the case. I mean, unfortunately, that would be it. It gets more interesting as if you've got a sectional title, you've got a body corporate complex, which passes a resolution that now all owners must store the meters in their properties and some of them are lived in by owners and some are lived in by tenants. In that instance, um, they go ahead and they secure a company that reads all the meters. If the tenant says, I'm not comfortable with that, I'm not happy with the pay-as-you-go system, I like the way it is, regretfully you are stuck with that because the terms of the lease agreement reflect that. Um, it would be in a tenant's interest to, to do that because then they are the authors of how much electricity they need. And with bodies corporate especially, what you may find is that one body corporate amount comes in and it gets allocated based yeah. on the participation quota. So you as a tenant may be paying more, 
because that's the equitable way of doing it. In this fashion, you are in complete control. So I don't see why a tenant. And it could would be one be, of you in an apartment and five next door, but you're all paying the same amount of uh, you, which be, you possibly shouldn't be paying that absolutely. much. Absolutely, and, and they a, should be paying more effectively. So you know? I see a meter as being a brilliant mm. thing. Absolutely, I love I love the, uh, the the meters. I think it's helping a lot of people out because utilities are the one set of things that don't get paid when tenants uh, run low of funds. Well, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, we've got one more call on the line, and if you'd still like to get through, you've got a very short window to give us a call and the number to call us on is 0892 10 2010 in King Williamstown good evening good day how are you hello very well how are you I'm good thanks uh, mine is that I have a question now with regards to this tenant uh, lending uh, the thing is that I want to inquire if now you have tenants in your house and you had installed new cupboards and so on and now Five to ten years down the line, those cupboards, they fall and they say that it's not their fault, it's due to wear and tear. How do you differentiate then if, it's the, if, it, if it was damaged by the tenants or is it wear and tear? Very, very simple. Yeah. At, at the beginning of the lease, Kobise, you have what we call an incoming inspection. You have, yes. you have a list of all the items in the property and the condition of those items once the lease is signed. That is what yes. we call an incoming inspection, the most important thing you'll do besides actually having the tenant sign the lease and pay the deposit. At the end of the lease, you do an inspection to determine what the property looks like then. Yes. When you look at the incoming inspection and the outgoing inspection and you see what damage there is, then you'll be able to make a decision, right, this stuff has been damaged. Is it fair wear and tear? Well, a punch hole through the cupboard would be not be fair wear and tear, but uh, fading color or broken shelves because they, they've started to, to mulk a little bit and rust has come into the, into the actual handles, etc. In that instance, that could be fair wear and tear because it's 10 years. So yeah. it comes down to, and I've done a couple of lectures on fair wear and tear, and it's covered in my, in my big course through UCT. The most important thing is that you have to use your discretion. There's a deposit, obviously, that you would have sitting in, a, in an interest-bearing account. And over a period of time, they would have gained interest and be worth quite a bit of money. You go in with an outgoing inspection. And if I were you, I would rather take a managing agent with me just to ensure that somebody who knows how rental property works, they will yeah. be able to say, Kobisa, you know what? That cupboard from the inspection here, it looks like it wasn't a brand new cupboard when it started off. So I don't believe that's fair wear and tear. A brand new carpet over 10 years and it's a bit scruffy, I don't believe that's uh, that can be d- d- deducted from because that would be fair wear and tear but there yeah. are a list of things and i'm happy to send you that list of things you can look out for could be say uh, for what is fair wear and tear and what isn't fair wear and tear but it comes down to what you believe based on who's lived there how they've lived etc yeah. so it's not a black and white thing at all it's very 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 difficult to determine because that deposit you you can use to fix up the property to put it back into the way it was at the beginning of the lease but you're not allowed to use that deposit to make your premises look beautiful for the next tenant so you can't use it for paint or to replace carpets or you, that kind of thing or can only you? if you only if you can show that the carpets have been degraded to the point no, where I mean it's if, not if they're rented. dirty and need to be cleaned or dirty, you just decide that the color you had 10 years ago doesn't really look so good 10 years to clean, later clean, you can use 
use yeah. it to clean up, but not to replace the carpet. Yeah, and you can't they, use it to repaint the house. If yeah. the if the painting has d- degraded to such a point that it isn't fair wear and tear, but it's full of holes, oh, yes, yeah. you can. But, but I mean, if the colour's faded and it looks just like it needs a good spruce up, you can't really do that. Yeah. Or can no, you? Well, I can tell you now that the tenant has a duty to restore the premises to the way it was. Okay. Yeah. If the, so they should so do. If a paint, Junior's been drawing all over the wall. Paints mm. painted over. They, the the tenant needs to do that. It's in the tenant's mm. interest to do that without having the landlord use their deposit because the landlord will go to the top end person to do the job, whereas a tenant will find somebody who can do uh, as good a job for much less. So it comes down to those two lists and to determining based on what you think and how they've lived, what is fair, what isn't fair. But it's always a contentious issue, could be say, probably the most contentious issue I've always had to face with rental matters. Now you said you had, you said you had lists of those uh, fair wear and tear things. Maybe if you could send, would you mind sending Not at all. I did on a, the Facebook page? I did a lecture on fair wear and tear through the Institute of Estate Agents. I've got okay. a list of one, one or two lists of what I believe is fair wear and tear and what isn't fair wear and tear. Okay, so keep a look out on the uh, law on SAFM. I'll post those up as soon as Marlon lets me have them. Could be so good luck to you. Thanks for getting through and keep an eye on the Facebook page. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks. Good night to you. Gosh, we really seem to be trawling around in Durban this evening. We've got Mark in Margate. Mark, good evening. Yes, good evening to you. Thank you for the wonderful show. I love SAFM. I listen to it all the time. Well, thank you. More of it. How can we help you? One question. One question. Referring to a previous caller, if landlords have the right to have electricity and water bills in their name, how do people get a bank account or credit? Yeah, that's actually a good point because you need to always supply a utility bill, don't you? Exactly. Actually, that's a jolly good point. I know whenever I go I'll, to the I'll bank, leave, I have I'll a problem. I know you're in a Thank <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Good night to you. That's, that's actually a, a fair question. point. That's a very good question. Um, I, I mean, I would like to look at the law regarding that, but I can tell you now that um, invariably, if a tenant has to apply for credit, they would need at least one of those two. Or even a bank account. Even a bank every account. Because every time you've got to go and fika something, Whatever, Rika. I'm never quite sure if Fikas and Rikas and stuff. Rikas and Salsa, yeah. Well, that one of them. You, but actually, for both of them, you need to take a utility bill. What I would do is I'll apply my mind. Yeah, that's actually um, a jolly good point. It is a, it is a very good question. It's nice that Mark leaves yeah, us Mark, with the question. Thank and, you for that. You've, you've left us scratching our heads now. Let's stay in Durban quickly. Howard, good evening. Hello, Howard. Howard? Howard. Is Howard there? No? Yes. Maybe Mark's getting off. Hello. Oh, you oh, are there. Is. Hello, Howard. 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 Hi, how can we help you, Howard? Yeah, I've got a problem. I've got a tenant that hasn't paid the rent for two months. Mm. And he's gone off to Australia. He's gone off to Australia. Yeah, and he'll be back and he's taking longer. He's going to be away longer than when he thought he was going to be. Okay, so your problem when? is, uh, when does the lease come to an end? Pardon? When does the lease end? Uh, well, we've got an indefinite lease. Indefinite. Mm. Indefinitely. So well, I think what you need to do is you need to cancel the lease. Uh, I think that's the first thing. You need to give a month's notice because if it's an indefinite lease, it uh, it's, can be cancelled on reasonable notice. Let me put you this way. If he's in Australia and he's not coming back. Um, he's, coming, he's coming back. If he's coming back, send a letter of demand yeah. to the property because that's the chosen domicilium informing him that he needs to pay. It's also worth your while to find out where in Australia is and if he's contactable. Um, the bottom line is there's no point starting litigation because getting a judgment and trying to execute, it becomes a costly process. Wait yeah. for him to come back or alternatively try to get hold of him and send a letter saying, listen, just because you leave to Australia, which you're entitled to do as long as you pay your rental, you still owe the rental and it's, it's appropriate to give him notice so that when he comes back, he's aware that you can issue summons against him or you can, if you decide to issue summons, you can take judgment against him. But you must certainly get a letter off to him. Okay, uh, informing he's due to come back in about 10 days' time. 
Well, then I don't think there's an issue. I think you wait till he comes back and you dispatch a letter to him immediately saying you've got 20 business days to pay or seven business days, depending on, um, on what okay. your lease says and when it was signed. But it could, if he is going indefinitely, it would be a bigger issue. That I can uh, assure you. If he was going indefinitely, it would be a far, far bigger issue. Yeah, yeah, no, no, he's coming back in about, about 10 days' time. Well, then meet, him at, meet him at Cape Town International. Durban, Meet him at Durban International and just say hello, Durban International <laughs> Airport, and say, hi there, yeah. um, I'm waiting for your rental. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll, be, I'll be ready when I know Good luck to you, Howard. Thanks <laughs> okay. for getting through. Thanks again. Thanks Good night. Well. Bye-bye. It's King Shaka. King Shaka. I don't get to Durban much, but I'm coming there on the 23rd of of April. Right for your seminar. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know why we've got, seriously, everybody in Durban has been tuned in this evening. Alex, very quickly, also in Durban, we've got about three minutes. How can we help you very quickly? Uh, Listen, I just bought a, 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 not not, not that we bought it yet. Uh, The contract is ready to be signed, but we are renting that house at the moment. Mm. Only We only found out that uh, the house has got a roof leak. Yes. What do we have to do in this case? So you, you, you're saying that you, you've bought a property, but you haven't taken transfer yet? Not yet. But you've but taken we, occupation. We are renting a house at the moment. Are you renting? So a you're different renting? house or that actual house? Yes. The one, the one that we want to buy. Oh, so oh. you basically, are you in occupation? You're paying occupational interest until you yes, take transfer. Exactly, yeah, yeah but, but the house has got a, a roof leak now. Well, if the house is going to leak, it depends on who's selling the house to you. Who is it a person who sells houses for a living or is it a private a person who just has one or two houses? It's important because if the person, uh, if the Consumer Protection Act applies, you certainly will have a right to call upon that owner to fix it up because that owner cannot hide behind a footstool's clause, which means buying the property as is, if that's what they do for a living. Those people who sell properties, like a developer, for example, can never contract out of latent and patent defects. So you need to basically do a bit of investigation, Alex. You need to find out who the seller is, who the agent is, and make sure that you tell them that you can't take transfer with a leaking roof. They have a duty to fix it up. Alternatively, um, if you're going to fix it up, they must refund you that amount. But that's something you can certainly sort out before you, they take the transfer. Before you take transfer, because the minute you take transfer, it does become your responsibility and becomes a little bit more difficult. So do something tomorrow. The Alex. risk lies with the seller until you take transfer. Because the agent told us that we have to speak to the uh, the lawyers, the, the bank lawyers. We have to tell them that because the, the agent already knows that the house is leaking. Well, that's interesting. I think the agent is wrong. I think you need to speak because to the agent and the owner. I think it's now those two, I mean, the seller, mm-hmm. both of them are separated. See, they're, they're, they're divorcing and they, they, they don't want to cooperate. Oh, gosh. So you're in the middle of a divorce situation as well there now. My best advice, go see a lawyer. It's the best of us and give you in the short But at time. least you've got proof you've told the agent. Maybe get it in writing and get the agent to sign the thing that you have told them that the roof is leaking. And at least you've got some proof that you've said something before the transfer goes through. But try not to let this transfer go through unless, you know, you've agreed to have it fixed. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And, and surely that, that will affect the bank's valuation of the property? I mean, Absolutely. I wonder what happened when they did the valuation. If the state agent knew and the state agent failed to disclose that, the state agent could find themselves in, in line for a bit of a liability there. There's a duty to make disclosure of everything. Even if there's no disclosure, there's a duty on the state agent to make sure that the property is in free of defects. So... Alex certainly will have recourse against someone. But Alex also just maybe speak to his bank because they would have sent their valuers out to value it for him buying They've it. granted a bond based on the value of the Alex? property. Alex? Yeah. Yeah. Go, go and speak to your bank as well. Just find out who, what happened when they went to do the inspection for the bond. Okay, no, it's fine. I'll do that. But don't leave it. Do it before yeah, the transfer definitely. goes through. Yeah. Thanks for getting through, Alex. Good, Good night luck. to you.
Gosh, Thank I, you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I don't know, we seem to have all our listeners in Durban or in KwaZulu-Natal. Not all of them, but 99% of them are from KwaZulu-Natal tonight. Rather nice. Maybe Cape Town's sick of me. I don't well, know. Well, no, I don't think so. We all have, we're giving everybody a turn. How's that? Yes, I'm an equal opportunity. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, yes. Well, we've come to the end of the show once again, and we seem to have screamed through it this evening again, Marlon. But thank you very much once again for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Some interesting questions. Yes. Um, I'm always happy to learn. And we're going to look, are you going to send me the fair wear and tear? And we're going to look up the stuff. thing about the utility bills. Absolutely. And I'll mm. send some more information about the seminars. You can put it Great. on the Facebook page. I will do that. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me thank again, Karen. Well, Marlon Chevalier as was joining us as usual on the last Monday of the month, and he's an attorney practicing in Cape Town as Marlon Chevalier and Associates, and he's been my guest on tonight's edition of the Law Report program. If you'd like to let us know about any legal issue or topic you'd like us to discuss here, you can email me at law at safm.co.za. And don't forget, there's now a Facebook page, Law on SAFM. And uh, you can go and have a look. All the information from the shows every week will be on there, contact details and other information. So it's quite useful. Well, the Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And in the program next week, we'll be discussing labor law with Michael Bagram and taking a look at disciplinary hearings. It's the Law Report next Monday, the 4th of February.